Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. The scripture reading today is from the book of John, chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God's might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of he who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seen. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am that man. Now then, how then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning, church. Everyone's laughing at my Baylor shirt. I can can see it. I can feel it. You know, uh, glad you're here. My name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors on our team here, if you don't know me. And Eric, great job on the prayers of the people. I think I submitted about a dozen prayer requests for the Baylor game this afternoon, so make sure you put that in for the second service. Okay. Um, Today is the fourth Sunday in Lent, and we'll be back next Sunday for the fifth Sunday in Lent before celebrating Palm Sunday and the beginning of Holy Week. Just in the past few weeks, we've looked at a few different stories from the Gospel of John. Uh, Two weeks ago, Michelle Jones, she spoke about Nicodemus, someone who we will see come up again in the gospel narrative. Last week, Pete gave a great uh, message on the woman at the well, which I found super helpful. It was a different perspective on a text that many of us have heard uh, many times, and so it brought both nuance and clarity. Next week, we're gonna be looking at the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And today, as you heard from Fred, we are going to spend some time diving into the story of Jesus healing a man born blind. Fred uh, expertly read the first 12 verses of chapter 9, but our lectionary text actually goes all the way to the end of chapter 9, uh, which is 41 verses. So it felt cruel to have Fred read um, all 41 verses up here. It'd probably take 41 minutes, too. So uh, what I'm going to do is briefly give us, you know, the Cliff's Notes version of what happens through the remainder of our text today so that we can talk about it all. Uh, what Fred read ends with the man being born, man born blind, uh, being asked uh, where this Jesus is who's healed him. Where has he gone? He says he doesn't know. So then the Pharisees come into the picture. 
and they question the man. They uh, bring up how he was healed on the Sabbath, and that even if the healing was real, uh, that would make it wrong, if it was real, and a sin. But they don't really believe that a sinner like Jesus could do something like that. And then they ask this man, okay, what do you think about this Jesus? And he tells them, oh, I think he is a prophet. The Pharisees don't believe his story. And then they did, what they did next was actually my greatest fear as a middle schooler. They called his parents, okay? <laughs> uh, was, you know, just about the greatest threat, right? And uh, they call his parents in and they ask him, they say, is this your son? Was he really born blind? How can he see now? And they respond, yes, he is our son. Yes, he was born blind, but we don't know how he can see. Also, he's old enough. Just ask him yourself. You know, he's an adult. Uh, parenting, you know, adults, it's hard, right? So they uh, summon the man born blind again, and they say, all right, be honest. We know that this guy, sinner, that this guy Jesus is a sinner, and he is up to no good. We want you to confirm our suspicions about him, you know, or else. And so the man born blind says one of the most famous Bible verses turned song lyrics of all time. He says, I can't speak to all that, but here's what I do know. I was blind, but now I see. The Pharisees don't love that he's sticking to his story, so that must mean he is clearly a sinner too. So they kick him out of the community. So finally, the story ends. Jesus has been absent for 26 verses of this story. It's actually the longest chunk in the Gospel of John that we go without Jesus. And then Jesus shows up again, and after a little back and forth, the man born blind confesses that Jesus is Lord. In the end, what we see is that it is the Pharisees who are truly the blind ones. If you were to break it up into separate scenes, it would look like a seven-act play. Jesus heals the man, the neighbors question him, the Pharisees question him, the Pharisees question his parents, the Pharisees question him again, Jesus revisits him, and Jesus challenges the Pharisees. That is the entire chapter right there. Everybody feel good about that? Know where we're at? Okay. So this story is a part of the Gospel of John. It's in a section of John called the Book of Signs. And John, in all of its kind of unique gospel glory, refers to these type of events differently than the other gospels in that he calls them signs versus miracles. Uh, it's a bit of semantics. But the reason why he does this is that these signs, like signs for us driving, are meant to point to something deeper about Jesus' identity. They aren't just neat stories to be shared, but they are indicative of significant truths about Jesus. When Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding in Cana, it wasn't a cool party trick, but it revealed Jesus as the abundantly generous host of the Messianic banquet. When Jesus feeds the 5,000, it shows that Jesus is a nourishing provider who will not only provide manna, but offer up his own body and blood. These are all signs they point to who Jesus is. And they're often accompanied by I am statements from Jesus. Last week when Pete talked about the woman at the well, when she suggested the Messiah is coming, Jesus responded, I am he. We see it in phrases like, I am the bread of life, I am the good shepherd, I am the true vine. And this all points back to the name that God described himself to Moses in Exodus as the great I am. And so we have one here in our text as well. Second half of verse Five says, I am the light of the world. And this theme of light, it is a part of these signs and what John is revealing about Jesus all throughout this gospel account. Uh, many of us know how John begins. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But it, it continues. It says, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. Recently, uh, my daughter Penny, she has been super into building forts, okay? Uh, we have this little uh, nugget couch, which you have little kids, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, you think I'm crazy, but it's a nugget couch, and what you do is you can use it to build forts, and we'll put uh, blankets on the doors and make sure that it is totally shut. She's very particular about how everything has to go, and, and it gets really dark in there. And so what we did is we brought our little uh, camping lantern in there. She loves for it to be totally dark. And then she knows how to turn the lantern on, and she just lights up with the light coming into that little tent. This previously totally dark space. And so what I'll often do is uh, I like to sneak things in there that she doesn't know are going to be there. And so I'll grab one of her stuffed animals or one of her cars, and I'll bring it in there with me. And then when she turns on the light, she's like, oh my gosh, Pippa's here. Like, it's crazy. And she just has this... This, this light reveals what's going on. And that's, that's a silly example, and as basic as it sounds, but when the light comes into the darkness, we see things that otherwise are hidden in the dark. This is what Jesus is doing in our passage today. He is bringing focus and light to three different relationships, and so I want to talk about those today. The first relationship that we see Jesus bringing light to is our relationship with each other, with our fellow humans. In our story today, there are a few key characters. There's the man born blind, uh, the neighbors, the Pharisees, his parents, and of course, Jesus. All of these uh, characters are both positive and negative examples. The beginning of our text says, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. Jesus sees this man, and what he does is he moves towards him. This was something that the man probably wasn't used to. As we see in the next few verses, uh, his community believed that he was a sinner. Even Jesus' disciples, they have these feelings. And there was this assumption that there was a connection between the man's blindness and previous sin. Either he or his parents must have done something wrong to have this punishment of blindness. Again, with a man being born blind, okay, that kind of muddies the water. He, maybe he's not the sinner, maybe his parents are, maybe he sinned in the womb, which was actually something they thought could happen. And so the disciples even asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus tells them that it is neither. Uh, but I think that this type of thinking is a little bit of you know, a form of control. It's, it's trying to understand something that we can't really understand. There may not be an answer, but, but we want to claim agency. We want there to be some type of formula. We, we want to know why he's born blind. Is it because of this sin? And uh, maybe it's you, or maybe it's someone you know that is very superstitious, or at least a little stitious, right? And it's uh, often sports fans or athletes do this all the time. Uh, baseball players seem to be the most superstitious, uh, but they have these certain things that they must do. You know, you gotta wear the same thing. Uh, you gotta prep the same way. You gotta sit in the same chair to watch the game. If a no-hitter is happening, right, you can't talk about it, otherwise you're going to jinx it. Uh, maybe if your team is losing at halftime, you might change shirts, wear something else. And none of these things influence the game. They don't work. I'm sorry to break that to you if you think that they do. But what they do for us is that they offer up a measure of control, a measure of agency. You know, I am involved in this outcome. 
right? The Baylor game this afternoon. If I just sit in the right place, they will win, right? I am involved in this. I can influence something that I have no chance of influencing. That's what's happening here. The Pharisees, the disciples, they're all trying to offer up rationale for why this man is blind. There's got to be a reason. We, gotta, we have to be able to explain this. You know, he must have done something wrong. He must have some secret sin. Last week, Pete talked about uh, this idea concerning the woman at the well, of this complicated mixture of grace and karma that all get knotted up, that we can find ourselves thinking that other people get what they deserve. We begin to assume that somebody isn't doing as well because uh, they aren't making good choices or they have sin in their life. They've done something wrong in their life. But Jesus demonstrates that the world, it's not a moral slot machine where people put a coin in as a good act or a bad act and they get out a reward or a punishment. Yes, actions have consequences. Yes, good things often, often happen as a result of good actions. Kindness produces gratitude. Bad things often happen through bad actions. If you drink and then drive, it usually doesn't turn out well. But they're not inevitable. It's not a one-to-one -one correlation. Jesus says it doesn't work this way and that something actually much more mysterious and more hopeful is going on. We don't know why these things might happen, but what we do know is that the loving, wise, and caring God is making his new creation out of these things and out of us. So why is this man born blind? We don't know. Jesus doesn't give us the answer, but what we do know is that the healing shows us that who Jesus is and how Jesus thinks that we should see and act towards one another. He shows that we're not to shy away or to judge, but we are to move towards one another in love. So what does Jesus do? Uh, after saying this, he spit on the ground. He made some mud with the saliva, and he put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. And so the man washed and came home seeing. So first of all, ew, like, kind of gross. Uh, second thought, Jesus was probably super hydrated. You know, it's like, to be able to make that much mud, be able to get that much spit out there, I, honestly, it's impressive, okay? Um, we're going to come back and talk about the healing and the mud in a moment, but what does stand out to me is what happens next. His neighbors say, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg some claim that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. Ouch. You know, these are the people that he has probably been around for his whole life, and they don't even recognize him. I had some major judgment on these people when I first started prepping for this sermon, but uh, two weeks ago, I was here on a Sunday morning, and I saw a strange man that I had never seen before. Uh, he was wearing a hat. He had a majestic mustache that rivaled Tom Selleck. And so I said, I should go say hi to this guy. Well, it turns out it was Jacob Radomski. And uh, he is Antioch's favorite drummer. He's not drumming today, but he is often drumming up here. But he shaved his beard, and he looked like a completely different person. Did that happen to anybody else? Okay, I talked to like four or five other people who had the same experience, like did not recognize Jacob at all. So I, I learned some empathy for these folks. But even these, the man's parents have a little bit of a questionable reaction. They are brought into the interrogation by the Pharisees, so understandably they are a bit nervous, uh, but they, they let their fear of what might happen overwhelm their joy. 
We can understand an older couple being reluctant as they think about their social standing, their livelihood, uh, perhaps their community. They were worried about what would happen. Uh, but wouldn't we expect them to at least celebrate with their son and to be joyful over his healing? We don't see any of that in the text because the fear of the unknown steals their joy. The fear of the other steers their joy. Of what the Pharisees might do to them, they might get kicked out of the community. And what's interesting is, is they're afraid of what the Pharisees might do, but the Pharisees also are afraid. While they may be used to attacks from outside their religion, they cannot stand for something new arising from within that is starting to crack their system and power from top to bottom, or more aptly, from bottom to top. The Pharisees are focused on the wrong things throughout the entire interaction. They want to know how it happened and what day it happened so they can claim it was a sin on the Sabbath. They want a supposed sinner to be involved so they can discredit anything happening at all. They are afraid of a new thing happening, and they, what we see is that they have a fear of the other. Rather than moving towards the blind man like Jesus, they want to keep him at an arm's distance because he is a sinner. Rather than celebrating his life change and transformation, this man was just blind a few minutes ago. They want to discredit and doubt. Rather than accepting him for who he is, they, they answer the question they themselves had asked in the beginning. Did this man, is he a sinner? Is his parents a sinner? And in verse 34, he says, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus shows them and us a better way, a way of acceptance, a way of meeting people where they are, of seeing past what others might focus on whether that's being differently abled, of looking different, acting different, believing different, Jesus meets this man who's been deemed an outcast with love. He comes to this man in his blindness and gives him vision. He does not quiz him on anything. He does not set terms or conditions on his healing. He does not make sure he checks all the boxes and agrees with him in every single way. Only later, when Jesus returns, does he ask him about belief. Jesus wanted him to know that he belonged even before he believed. So it should be for us. But if there is something kind of quite unique about this healing, and we touched on it briefly, and again, that's that Jesus spits on the ground, he makes mud and puts it on the man's eyes. Why does Jesus do it this way? There are other stories in the Gospels of Jesus healing blind people. Uh, sometimes all he has to do is touch them. Uh, sometimes it's just spit, which I don't know if that's more or less hygienic than today's healing. Uh, here it's, you know, dirt plus spit equals mud. And what we see here is that Jesus is trying to reorient a second relationship for us, and that's our relationship with creation. Or as we like to say here at Antioch, with the rest of creation. Because when we look at the creation account, we see that there are two categories and two categories only. There's the creator and the created. And we fall in that second category. But that's not how we tend to read the creation story or how we tend to live in the world. Whether we've been uh, overtly taught it or not, we've defined the pinnacle and high watermark of creation as humanity, as us. But that's not the case. And I think that Jesus is putting this into focus in this passage and bringing to light this misunderstood relationship. Uh, Thomas Aquinas 
uh, was a kind of theologian, philosopher from about a thousand years ago, but he says any error about creation leads to an error about God, which is why we must get this relationship right. And this healing, it has all sorts of connections to Genesis 1 and 2 with the theme of light. It talks about there being day and night of creation on the Sabbath. And then again, specifically in Genesis 2, 2 2.7 says this, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, I have to try hard not to quote Wendell Berry every time I preach. Um, but I'm gonna do it again right now. Uh, He says this, it's too good. I couldn't say it better myself. He says, the breath of God is only one of the divine gifts that makes us living souls. The other is dust. Most of our modern troubles come from our misunderstanding and misevaluation of this dust. So much of our theology, particularly in kind of white American evangelical spaces, has focused so much on the spiritual that we neglect the physical. Pete talked about this a few weeks ago, but we are not just spiritual beings, we are physical beings. And so is Jesus. And what are we made from and out of? Dust, which puts us on level ground with the rest of creation. As many of you know, I am in school like Pete, and we are racing towards the finish line together, though he's going to beat me. And uh, what I'm researching is all about understanding how our spiritual formation is tied up in our relationship with the rest of creation. And we're gonna do a mini series on the creation accounts. We'll be rolling out some more formation and practical opportunities over the summer and fall. So another plug, please join us in reading Stewards of Eden. But if you are passionate about that stuff, if you're interested in that stuff, come find me, come talk about it. I want to learn from you. I'll say we have this notion where we are so focused on the saving of souls that the doctrine of redemption has taken priority over the doctrine of creation. Our spirituality has been raised above our earthiness. But in this healing today, Jesus shows us that our earthiness is just as important, that our physical bodies matter, that our connection to the earth matters. We aren't just spiritual beings, we're physical beings too. Creation isn't just instrumental to our salvation, it is the very substance of our salvation in Christ. Our proper relationship with creation is not one of superiority, but one of working alongside and in support and in tandem. That we are to seek to live in harmony with creation in such a way that it emulates the peace of Jesus. Because you and I live at a time where we're dealing with the repercussions of this misaligned relationship, which to me makes us a chosen group. It's up to us to live differently, to reach beyond political propaganda, and to know that we have the best reason to care for the rest of creation. We know the Creator. It's the best reason. And the Creator has charged us with stewarding this gift with our very selves. So this passage, it brings to light our relationship towards one another. It brings to light our relationship with creation. And ultimately, this passage brings focus to our relationship with the light himself, Jesus. And how we can see Jesus is demonstrated by the transformation of the man born blind. Throughout the story, he goes on a journey. We don't know how old he is. We know he's blind from birth. We know he's considered at least an adult. And one random day, he hears this man, Jesus, defending him against accusations of being a sinner. Probably felt pretty good to have someone defending him for the first time in a while. And then, you know, it gets weird, right? I'm guessing you heard Jesus just hawk a big loogie. And uh, he's like, what is going on here? 
Uh, and, then, and then he gets this mud all over his eyes. He goes and he washes in the pool of Siloam. And for the first time in his life, he can see. And he has changed so much, his community doesn't even recognize who he is. Probably someone that they've lived with their entire lives. The religious leaders, they challenge and question him. And when asked about Jesus, he answers with what he knows at the time. I think he's a prophet. In the face of continued accusations and interrogations, he sticks to his story. He doesn't have to manufacture any bells and whistles to his experience with Jesus. Instead, he says this, here's what I know. I was blind, but now I see. And then finally, in verse 38, he says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. He refers to him as Lord for the first time. The man born blind, he experienced the light in the beginning, but he didn't understand everything at first. Jesus didn't expect him to either, but his was a story of transformation. The picture slowly came into focus for him. We see that in Jesus, the light of the world, that he brings new clarity and new focus to each of these areas in our lives of how we see others, especially those that we might write off. I mean, if you look at it, there's a great reversal in this text. The story begins with the disciples assuming that because this man was born blind, either he or his parents must be guilty of sin. Jesus opposes that view. He defends the man. He heals him. Because as the story concludes, Jesus takes this metaphor of seeing to the next level. The Pharisees claim to see everything clearly when Jesus makes it clear that they don't. While blindness is not an indication of sin, claiming to be able to see when you can't certainly is. And this great reversal is found in Jesus' final challenge and condemnation of the Pharisees. Unlike the blind man who recognizes the grace of God in Jesus' restoration of sight and light in his blindness, the Pharisees insist that they know and see everything already. They are close to the gift of Jesus, who can only give sight to those who know they are blind. Because this story, this is a story about before and after. For the man, there was a moment. There was a thing that happened. His life was completely transformed and he can't really explain it. No one seems to believe him. He tries to describe it, but all he can really say is how he's different. Can't explain the specifics of it. All I know is that I was blind, and now I see. And I wonder if you've had the same experience. It may not have been as drastic as going from blindness to sight, but my hunch is that for many of us in this room, we are here in this place because we've had an encounter and an experience with Jesus may have been a moment, it may have been gradual, and it might be hard for you to describe. You can't quite put your finger on it or explain it in a way that makes sense. Maybe your before and after experience resulted in your community barely even recognizing who you are. But I'm guessing that your experience mirrors the man in our story today. This is what I know. I was blind, and now I see. And again, I, what I especially love about this man's story is that it was a journey. It was a gradual transformation. The healing was sudden, but his maturation took time. When he started, he didn't have the full picture. From hearing Jesus to saying, all I know is he put some mud on me, I can see, to calling him a prophet, to saying, oh, he must be from God, to declaring him as Lord, his views about Jesus evolved as the light of Jesus came into more clarity. Physically and metaphorically, I'm sure that he squinted at first. 
the light that he experienced all around him in the world for the first time, and in Jesus, the light of the world, stunningly bright. Slowly but surely, his eyes got used to living in the light of seeing differently because of the light of Jesus. Just like the man, our spiritual journeys echo his journey. Once I saw the world like this, now I see it like this. Once, once I believed this way, and now I believe this way. Once I lived in a place where I was blind to certain things, and now my eyes are opened, and here is what I see and know. So I wonder for you, as we think about this narrative of seeing, of Jesus bringing light to the darkness, what might you need to see differently because of Jesus? And maybe not just see differently, but act and live differently. The restoration of sight to the man born blind is absolutely because of the work and the power of Jesus. But the man is also required to take some initiative on his own. Jesus' healing work is an invitation to the man, but he must accept it and take initiative as well. He has to go to the pool to wash. He has agency in the story. He is not just passive. It wasn't just touched him and he was healing, but the mud on his eyes and he had to respond to Jesus' touch. He's active. He's not just passive. So in the light of Jesus, how might you need to see others differently? Whether they live their lives differently, they spend their money differently, are differently abled, look different, believe different, vote different, have a different immigration status, watch a different news channel, how does the light of Jesus change your perception of others? What can you see differently about a person because the light of Jesus is shining on them? In our story today, Jesus shows us what it is like to approach the other with confidence in love rather than with fear. What does your before and after story need to be of how you relate to others especially those who are different from you. And so, in the light of Jesus, how might you need to see the rest of creation differently? The land, plants, animals, your backyard, the mountains, the rivers. Maybe you've had a before and after moment where the light of Jesus has illuminated that you've gotten our relationship with the rest of creation all wrong. That it's not one of dominance or subservience, but that we are in an interdependent relationship with the rest of creation. I'm going to smuggle in another Wendell Berry quote. He says, We are holy creatures living among other holy creatures in a world that is holy. What you eat, what you throw away, your consumption, environmental policies you support, prioritizing time outside, it all matters. It matters on its own, but it also matters because creation care equals people care. It's one way we love others, that the way we live and move and have our being on earth directly impacts others' ability to do the same particularly the most vulnerable. How might the light of Jesus lead you to relate differently to the rest of creation today? And finally, how do you see Jesus differently today? Maybe the faith handed down to you was uh, nearly perfect in every way, theologically, about salvation, about sin, about others, about creation. But my hunch, and what I believe to be God's hope for you, is that you have evolved from that conversion experience to know Jesus more deeply today. And that as the light of Jesus has invaded all of the dark parts of your life, you found him to be more loving and more challenging and more convicting than you ever imagined. And that your life is drastically different because of it. So maybe it wasn't so bad that the community didn't recognize the man after he was healed. Maybe him being unrecognizable after his encounter with Jesus shines a light for us. That if our lives don't look different because of Jesus, 
we may have missed the light. That our living and breathing and working and voting and serving and our entire selves should be different in the light of Jesus. And what we'll begin to see is that all three of these relationships are intertwined and connected. Because of Jesus, I am called to love others and to care for creation. And when I love others and care for creation, these are acts of worship and love towards Jesus himself. We may not get it right or understand it all, but we can echo the words of the man with sight. We once were blind, and now we see. So, Antioch family, may the light of Jesus illuminate the areas of our lives where we fall short of his love. And may we follow that light in our love of others, the rest of creation, and God himself. Amen.